0: Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and you're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Every once in a while here on Cityscape, we give our time slot over to other pieces or interviews that fit into our general exploration of New York's people and places. Well, this morning we've got Julianne Welby taking over. You know her from City Folk Morning, weekdays here on WFUV. Julianne's going to bring us a wonderful interview with New York writer Pete Hamill, Hamill is the author of the novels Snow in August and Forever, and to the memoir A Drinking Life, all of which had long runs on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest novel is North River, a love story set in Depression-era Manhattan. Here he is, Pete Hamill, talking with WFUV's own Julianne Welby.
1: Well, we're here today to talk about your new book, and I'll just welcome you first, Pete Hamill. Welcome. Good morning. First off, I have to ask you, I am, granted, a relatively new New Yorker, only 10 years. Who calls the Hudson the North River?
2: Um, people my age are probably the last. I'm 72, so I'm probably the last generation that call- that called it that. It appeared on maps as late as the early 60s. When I went to work for a newspaper the first time in 1960, we still had assignment editors who would say, you know, get over to North River Pier 41, there's a fire. You know, they still they still did that. But uh, somehow it went away during the the 60s. Uh, it was, everybody called it that, particularly along the west side.
1: You can mistakenly call it the West River when, in fact, geographically New- yeah. Manhattan's at an angle. Well, it is Well, the reason
2: North. was that the, the Dutch named it because the the Dutch had basically two settlements in the New World. One was at the foot of Manhattan and up in Albany and along the river and they called that the North River and the other one was in Delaware and they called the Delaware River the South River. It was very simple uh, and it hung on under the British for a long time and a lot of, once the Irish started coming in countable numbers, they were not about to call a river after an Englishman (laughs) <laughs> uh, Hudson. Uh, so they stuck with the North River thing, and I think that's what kept it alive all those years.
1: I wonder if the idea that North is cold had something to do with it, because the North, the river in your novel here is all about cold thematically and literally.
2: Yeah. Certainly at the beginning, it's about uh, the ice in the river, the ice in the hearts of many human beings at the time because it's the depths of depression, ice in the heart of my main character who's a doctor who works on the west side, Um, and the one thing about that river is every spring the ice melts, and it's also not only about the ice but about the melting and the way it melts. Uh, for human reasons, in the soul of the doctor, so
1: it seems like this old version of the Hudson River, the North River, is harsher than it is to us today. We crave the waterfront in the New York City of today, but back then it was a sign of so much that it was harsh, though the labor that went on there, yeah, the people who had to ride those rough seas,
2: yeah, it was the manual labor um that went along the waterfront and on both sides of of the island. The East River had some, and then Brooklyn had a very developed waterfront after a while. Uh, And and all of that has gone, essentially, now, uh, for fairly simple reasons. There was no room to do the work of the waterfront. Uh, Once big container trailers came along, they couldn't move them around. It was built for the 19th century. Uh, literally, because it, they never used the Hudson until steamboats were developed in the early part of the century, 19th century. Uh, most of the shipping before that was all in the East River to protect it from the wind coming from the west, uh, sailing ships. So appropriately, the South Street Seaport uh, is on the East River because it's a monument to the end of of the great sailing ships, but there was there were other things obviously about it that um, that inspired writers of different kinds. There are some wonderful riffs in Melville about facing the sea and facing the the rivers that led to the sea. Um, Whitman wrote about both rivers. Um, the 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 sense that in the harbor and coming up the river in many cases, all those amazing immigrants that came from roughly 1880 until the beginning of World War I, um, Some of them just took a little ferry and got off at the battery, uh, but the, they knew the directions. You know, they knew the Bronx is up and the battery's down somehow, not from the song, but from their fellow passengers who had studied maps or something. So when I look at it, it's never empty. Um, and one of the sad things in the Depression was that it was empty because it was a teeming river until the whole economy went bad. And I look at it, even though it's empty now, and you're more or less commercially empty, um, you still see little boats coming up and down the river at night, uh, just lights on the blackness of the river, and you just look at that and say, a river is a living thing. It's uh, always been, here in Europe and every, in Japan, a metaphor for time, because it f- keeps moving. Even when it's frozen with ice, it's moving underneath the ice. Um, and, you know, novels in particular are about time and the effects of time. They're not snapshots. They're narratives uh, that proceed through time. Even uh, a novel uh, like Ulysses by James Joyce uh, goes through 24 hours. and the, the 24th hour or 25th hour is not the same as the first hour of that day. And that's a river city, too, with the Liffey. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: the time that you're in for this novel here, North River, on the surface is a really tough time, of course, the Depression. But by the way you write, it almost seems like a time that you're nostalgic for, this old New York City.
2: Uh, yeah, because that city and those people that lived through the Depression, including my mother and father, were the people that shaped me and, and my whole generation the The war ended in when I, the war ended in nineteen forty five I was ten uh, so i didn't have any clear memory of the depression, but the culture that was strengthened and forged in in the midst of so much widespread ha- uh, hardship was the thing that gave me whatever values I had as a kid It's one thing to learn values in a classroom it's another to know it from neighbors your family your uncles and aunts and how they got through things and they were an amazing generation of people and one of the things i wanted to do in the book was to celebrate them you know they um they were generous to the extent that they could be generous Uh, they were kind they were tough in the best sense of the word that is by that i mean they didn't talk tough they were tough um, and they got up every morning as if it was a new day, and for most of them it was. Uh, some people were damaged forever by the Depression. Some were defeated by it, never didn't live through it. But that Depression went on to fight and win World War II. Uh, and then to celebrate this amazing thing that happened after the war, um, which was the G.I. Bill the most important piece of social legislation in my lifetime uh, because it said that the son of an Irish factory worker or a Jewish cab driver or a black waiter could go to the university um, and read Spinoza too, you know, and that was a huge change uh, of the most positive and optimistic kind, and I think it marked everybody my age for the rest of our lives.
1: This is a New York where you know the name of the shop owner. Yes. And you know the restaurant owner. She gives you an extra glass of wine, a little extra dessert, knows your child. Yeah. Is this the New York City you ever know now?
2: Uh, yeah, if you take your time. Uh, I know the name of my news dealer. You know, I, I know the guys that work in the coffee shop. I know, you know, on that level, if you take the time to ask and if you're curious enough most people as you know who work in new york live like the double parked you know there isn't enough time for the common little courtesies but i think september 11th improved manners all over the city that people they're they're not you know to, to say excuse me on the f train it's like a revolution in manners in New York, you know, if you bump into somebody by mistake. And I think that's the beginning of something that might lead to that apparently vanished intimacy that that people had with each other. They knew each other. They knew who they were. They knew who, what apartment they lived in uh, across the street. Um,
1: they had a doctor who could make house calls. Yeah,
2: Who and, and if you didn't have the money, he didn't ask for it. You know? That wouldn't I mean, happen nowadays. No, not, <laughs> not. But, I mean, the doctors in those days were, the other part of what I was trying to do was to celebrate quiet heroes, you know, because it's obviously a fireman who runs into a burning building is a is a hero. Or a soldier, even in an unpopular war, who does his duty um, is a hero to me. But so are school teachers, so are doctors and nurses, and so those were heroic people, you know, people who do it, even though they know they might fail. We have them now. I mean, school teachers, in ghetto schools, who go in because of their calling, their vocation. It's easy to teach some middle-class kid, but to go in and teach a poor kid that it's worth learning how to read, and maybe eventually let him live with the Count of Monte Cristo for two or three weeks. That's a heroic uh, occupation.
1: And the character you've created for this new novel, North River, he really feels like he's working for his people in a very quiet way.
2: Absolutely. He comes from the neighborhood, for example. His father was a Tammany Hall guy. Uh, Not a big shot, but but, you know, important in the neighborhood. Gives him the
1: connections he needs. Yeah,
2: and it, and what he always calls the bounty of Tammany Hall, which allowed him to go to medical school at Johns Hopkins and and to go to Vienna in the year before World War One.
1: Sort of like his own GI Bill in a way. Yeah,
2: it was it, it was a kind of government grant. <laughs> Whether it was legal or not, we don't know. But writing it, I, I was struck by one other thing because I had the Tammany connection early in the book that one of the problems we're having with immigration right now is there's no tammany hall not here no no big city democratic organizations in other words they're no longer in boston they're they're not in kansas city they're not in chicago the way they were and they were the great instruments of making americans out of people who didn't know the Bronx was up and the battery was down. You know, they said, you want to be an American? Sit down here. Let me t- explain it to you. You've got to fill out this form. And then you want a job, you go over and see, Nako Carmody on the waterfront, and maybe he'll have something for you. All you have to do is vote for me for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that a was price. a pretty good deal. Right? That was a good deal, and we don't have that right now. Uh,
1: but there was a dark side to this world, too. I mean, it was when you're up, you're up. When you're out, you're out. Yes. There were stereotypes. There was racism.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Although with race, with with black and white race relations, first of all, there weren't that many blacks in New York because the great migration from the South didn't start till the 50s. Um, but the Depression was a great leveler. The poverty of Harlem and the poverty of the Irish West Side was the same. Everybody was out of work. It wasn't that it just affected a handful of people from so-called minorities. Uh, It affected everybody. And that meant that there was a, a, a decency in those relationships. There were other problems, and I get into some of them. Prohibition had just ended. So the old bootleggers who sold whiskey in violation of the law, uh, by the way, in violation of the stupidest law in American history. um,
1: Tell us what you really feel. (laughs) And and
2: it was really stupid. It created the mob, among many other things. Um, But they were trying to figure out what do we do now? They had been selling illegal for a long time, and they were sort trying to sort it out and they had different visions different in my book there's two different families, Italian crime organizations fighting each other over where we should go, should you sell drugs, should you take over the unions what what should you do so yeah, there were uh, disappointments and tensions amazing and dangers because uh, the racket guys by then all had guns.
1: Definitely a time of transition, to say yeah. the least. Yeah.
2: And uh, and yet there was, even with some of the racket guys, because I knew some in Brooklyn growing up after the war and after, long after the Depression, uh, even they had a fundamental decency. They would never, if you somebody had the gall to mug some old lady, the mob would find them before the cops would. You know, the same with, uh, you know, drunks who didn't do anything, getting rolled or something. They would be just as tough uh, against whoever did that kind of street crime um, as the cops would be. And often they were related to the cops. They mm-hmm. were cousins or brothers or or some relationship, but they knew each other.
1: Uh, All connected for better or worse. Yeah, yeah
2: the word connected came from that period where there were connections i don't mess with him he's connected
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's new york writer pete hamill in conversation with wfuv's julianne welby you're listening to a special edition of cityscape i'm george boraki your usual host and i'll be back with you for next saturday's show for now we'll continue with julianne's conversation with pete hamill we'll be back in just a minute
1: It seems, Pete, you could easily take this novel, North River, and do your own walking tour of old New York. Am I right?
2: I I probably could, although the book just before this, uh, called Downtown, uh, is probably better suited to that because there are parts of uh, New York that I don't get into in this novel. I don't I, I don't get into the. Woolworth building or what went on in City Hall or any of that stuff.
1: Yet it's really fun to travel to Grand Central Station with your main character, the doctor and his grandson, and see a not-yet-built Chrysler building. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's what I wanted. And and, uh, the little boy is the key to a lot of what happens in the novel because, as we all learn when we have children, uh, they teach you how to see the world again with innocent eyes. You know, because they're trying, in in the case of the boys, three, and he can speak, but he speaks Spanish because his mother had taken him off to Mexico. So he's learning to name the world in English. Uh, And I did research on that. I went around and asked women with children in the park, you know, once they got over my suspicions that I was some lunatic predator or something, (laughs) Uh, they would tell you, you know. I said, Well, what do they do? What are, the, what are the first words? Are they nouns or verbs? And they said, Nouns, all nouns car, tree, bird, dog. Uh,
1: it's a big deal in the book when yeah. you, the child yeah. gets to his first verb.
2: Yeah. And then <laughs> I said, What well, was the first verb? Uh, verb. And ninety percent of the people I talked to said I want, <laughs>
1: you know. See, that's amazing, Pete. I figured your research may have took place in a library and or just walking the streets of New York, but you were polling moms in Union Square. Yeah, who
2: would know better than? <laughs> and because I didn't remember, for I have two daughters, and a grandson, and I didn't remember because I was a reporter wandering around, and I went to Vietnam, and I, you know, and I, just like the doctor, I missed certain things about my own daughters growing up because I would be gone on some assignment or something somewhere. Uh, So I had to, and they didn't remember, so um, I had to go out and ask people, which is what Dickens did. You know, everybody who, who writes about things they didn't experience has to go find people and ask them.
1: The grandfather grandson relationship in this novel, though, is so strong and so vivid it has to come from your own personal experience no, as a grandfather yeah
2: I, th- I think it does in that sense that because you have learned anybody who 's a grandfather has learned about the amazing hazards of the world, you know that so many things can happen, and I think you you approach these vulnerable young humans uh, with a need to protect them, to keep them safe uh, and it was underlined to me in many cases by the wars that I covered, you know where inevitably in any war whether it's Vietnam or Nicaragua or Northern Ireland or wherever innocent children somebody takes a shot at some policeman or soldier and he hits a four year old and uh, and the grieving that people do in no matter what language it's, it's in is universal. It's universal because not only did the ch- child die in the present, the child's future died with him. We never know what that future might be. So, yeah, I think the, what you try to do is be as specific and concrete as you can. Um, and if you do it right, it becomes universal. It becomes something that can be experienced by all kinds of people.
1: What's it like transitioning to a novel after coming off of a successful piece of nonfiction like the one you've mentioned, Your Manhattan?
2: Well, I, before I started the the, the, the downtown book, uh, I already had the idea for this one. So it was really making a transition from the notion of this novel into the downtown <laughs> book. Uh, but it's... It, it, they're two different forms. You know, when you're dealing with with uh, nonfiction, whether it's journalism for a daily paper or magazine articles or books, and I've, I've written 20 books and half of them are nonfiction and half of them are fiction. Um, they're two different ways of looking at the world. Uh, a novel is an act of the imagination. Uh, you can research it. Then you've got to let the research marinate, so it makes uh, so it becomes memory, which is really the heart of fiction memory um memoir too is but but in, in fiction, you can fill in the blanks that you don't the things you don't know with your imagination, and you're always asking in fiction, what if what if she takes a left on Revington Street. Will she become a Republican? You know that kind of thing. You're mm-hmm. asking all these white what, if, what ifs. And so it's much more, much more fun writing fiction because you're in, in control of a, a world that you know about, um, and you have no obligations to be accurate to the characters. You know, you can. If you're writing nonfiction and you go interview somebody or meet them in the street at, or at some story, you owe it to them to be as accurate as you can.
1: Is it a sense of freedom that you didn't feel during the heyday of your newspaper? Oh, days? sure.
2: Because and and it was it was a different thing too, on newspapers, and that's why why so many journalists write fiction. The guys I like very much, like Pete Dexter, was a great newspaper man in Philadelphia. And um Breslin and others is that you know things you can't prove you 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 know that this guy's a crook, you can't prove it in your novel. you can show him as a crook or some version of him uh changing names and physical characteristics and the streets upon which they live, but you can get into the the things that you can't do and in, in journalism do you wish- and also you can get inside the head of the character in fiction you can't tell what anybody's thinking you you rely on what they tell you and they could be lying uh, do
1: you wish that journalism would loosen up in that way not so much go to fiction but a situation where journalists could f- could go more on their instincts
2: no I don't trust that i mean i, I it, it, You'd have
1: to trust the people that are choosing to become journalists.
2: Yeah. And, well, particularly young journalists can learn a lot from reading fiction about craft, you know, how to describe weather, how to create a sense of place, how to get the senses to make it vivid and alive how to get your principal characters on stage and your principal dilemma expressed and how quickly, particularly short fiction, particularly short stories, are useful to journalists. But I don't think journalists should be tempted uh, to, to try to emulate the other parts of fiction, which is the interior monologues, the sense of... The subjective narrator, I don't think that's the way. Keep them separate. I don't want to pick up a newspaper that has 25 stories by people like me. you know I want to, I want journalism to tell us who got killed and why and how did it happen.
1: Um, it's criticized so much now, the media for being too stuck in notions of balance for the sake of balance as opposed to truth.
2: Yeah, but I still think it's It's better to try to make the attempt. You know, that obviously Ed Murrow once said there are some stories to which there are not two sides. He meant the Holocaust and other outrages. You know, you can't say Hitler, on the other hand, who loves dogs and children, insists that, you know, you can't do that. But particularly when you're dealing with... Defenseless people, people who can't hurt you back. You have to have a sense of responsibility for the way you portray them, and you can't say obviously he was hiding something if you don't, if you can't prove that. So, uh, I, I believe commentary should be identified as such, but that the bulk of a newspaper has to be hard news reporting. Uh, the bulk of it uh, It doesn't mean every single story because I think reporting on the arts uh, is very important to a city like New York in particular, but to this country. You know, we have to know there's music other than hip-hop, and you have to know that there's novels other than chick-lit, you know?
1: <laughs> Before you go, I want to ask you about the traditional Irish tune that's stuck in your main character's head through much of the book. You uh, chose... Oh, Malio? My yeah. Irish Malio.
2: Yeah, My Irish Malio. Is that
1: you know, a significant song for don't you? Don't ask
2: me to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's up, it's but, up to but, you. No, I heard it sung first because my father was from Northern Ireland. My, both of my parents are from Northern Ireland, but he was a Northern Irish male Catholic. And Seamus Heaney has a wonderful poem that expresses the character of people on both sides of the religious thing in Northern Ireland. It's called Whatever You Say, Say Nothing. So I never had a real conversation with him until I could go into a bar with him legally as a semi-grown-up. And he would sing that song. Uh, He would sing a lot of other songs, uh, all of which were delightful. But he communicated his emotions through songs written by other people which is what Billy Holiday did and Frank Sinatra and a lot of other people. Uh, they f- were able to make certain songs autobiography. And so I learned about the things he felt most deeply from the kind of songs he sang. And my mother's name wasn't Molly, but it was one of those... Tunes uh, that came, I'm sure, at a halls. Molly, I'm I'm off my trolley. You know, you say, oh, gee, you can't write that stuff right now.
1: Not anymore. Uh, (laughs) Pete Hamill, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Pete Hamill's latest novel is called North River. It's published by Little Brown and Company, and our producer is Elisa Ali.
0: And that brings us to the end of this special edition of Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Julianne Welby for bringing us her chat with Pete Hamill. I'll be back next week with a brand new edition of Cityscape, an interview with the author of Boombox, a new novel set in a quickly gentrifying neighborhood in Brooklyn. Remember, you can find the Cityscape archives and information about our podcast at wfuv.org. Have a great weekend.